what did you do to be able to learn how to structurally set that up? Oh, you know, fuck it up over and over again. <laughs> After we finally did get some advertising and some stuff going, whatever, you know, we didn't have a finance person, so I did the finance. No good for how long? Six months until, in fact, this happened. Somebody said, what have we done about fat? And, you know, so I hadn't done anything about that. Suddenly I started thinking, shit. There's a vat of beer in the corner, if that's it, what you're yeah, asking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the only thing there is. There's a, did the bat. The, yes. the, there's a bat for the ping pong, but there wasn't any vat. Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes, and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion-dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. Success is in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. The AM Partnership, founded in 2001 by Johnny Hornby, puts together the spirits of an entrepreneurial media agency and the might of a global media powerhouse. With a plethora of experience, Johnny Hornby now has 1,400 staff. He was tipped to be the successor for Martin Sorrell at WPP, a guest that we incidentally had on the podcast earlier this year. Johnny is also the chairman of Prince Harry's charity, Centacle, and headed up Tony Blair's successful election campaign in 2001. I asked Johnny Hornby, is he the real-life Don Draper. We've had questions submitted by listeners and team members to this episode, so sit back, relax, get a pen and paper, and welcome to the show, Johnny Hornby. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Before we get into your illustrious career, I wanted to dial back the clock ever so slightly to when you were at Marlborough College, when you were at Edinburgh University, and just look at your childhood and your upbringing. What was that like? I mean, it's always much more romantic, isn't it, in these stories if you depict um, a childhood that was hard knocks and difficult and that, that that would be more compelling as a story but one has to be honest and I was very very fortunate to be born into a, into a talented family who were you know relatively successful my father in business my mother in journalism mm -hmm. uh, and therefore I sort of was lucky enough to grow up in a very sort of stimulating environment where there were always Lots of people in the house from probably from bit from business leaders to political figures to journalists, novelists, etc. And my parents were very social and enjoyed lots of debate and were also, I guess, quite forward thinking for the time because they were very keen to make sure that all the children were engaged. So we sat and ate with them and their friends. And so I think that was a that I was very, very lucky to be in such a stimulating environment do you know during your childhood what kind of inspired you to take the career path that, that that you've taken was there a pivotal moment where you go that is exactly the point i realized i wanted to go into agency life i don't think i knew it was agency life but i think sort of in the widest sense the world of media was very close to home um my mother was a journalist with radio 4 on woman's hour she was interviewing the likes of the beatles margaret thatcher Rosalind and jimmy carter you know and would come home at the weekend 
and talk about those things. My half brother was, you know, starting his career as a, a, a as a novelist. My half sister married Robert Harris at the time, who was the 28 years old, the political editor of mm-hmm. the Observer. You know, as a family, we were also quite connected to New Labour. Yeah, whether it was you know Peter Mandelson or, or others, that was all sort of part of the life for us at home and therefore i guess that world the wider world of media uh, you know intrigued intrigued me and you allude to, to new labor uh, or being connected when you were a child in 2001 you ran blair's uh, election campaign did you not was that was that through connections which your parents and your family had harnessed from a younger age no not well not really that the the i had come to meet peter mandelson through my brother-in-law through his work then at the observer um as political editor mm-hmm. and then i had and, and, and then knew Philip Gould and various people. And I had volunteered uh, back in the day, in the earlier days, pre-Blair, when they had a thing called Friends of Labour. So they didn't have an advertising agency as such. They had people who offered to donate their time to work for sort of Labour's cause, people in, in communications. And I was part of that. And that's really how I got sort of to know Peter well and the late Philip Gould, who were very much at the heart of those things, and and people like Alistair Campbell, and then in two thousand in nineteen ninety eight, we actually pitched uh, when I was at TBWA for Labour to do to do what was probably one of the most unsuccessful campaigns anyone's ever run, which was <laughs> I was very much at the heart of, which was Frank Dobson's uh, campaign right. to be Mayor of London. <laughs> nice of you to own up to it being so disastrous. Yeah, we it was a terrible it was a terrible campaign in every way. So uh, we had a very naff uh, <laughs> campaign theme, which is it's time to be frank about London. Right, <laughs> I see quite, what you did there, Johnny. I quite, like it. Quite, quite poor, quite poor, isn't it? And but not only that, what was very sort of amusing in hindsight was that at the time everyone sort of loved New Labour, and so we said that we were running Frank's New Labour's campaign. So I said to all the people who had been friends of Labour in the days before they appointed agencies, would everyone like to come and join in and we're going to have a breakfast? And so on the first morning, everyone who's everyone turned up and then the set, and there's, you know, so it's croissants for 50 people. And the first set of polls come out and Philip presents them and it shows that, you know, Frank is on a hiding to nothing. <laughs> and by... And by week three of these Friends of Labour breakfasts, it was me, Frank, and a pile of croissants <laughs> <laughs> and a set of increasingly terrible uh, results. And I think that was almost the way that we, uh, in a way, by the time we got to 2001, we had paid our dues to the Labour Party by trying to run this campaign at which, if you can remember, Frank had no chance of winning. And the only expenses scandal then would have been around the, the reclaiming of the croissant bill. I of, the uneaten, of the <laughs> uneaten, huge pile of uneaten croissants. Yes, exactly. And going back to your siblings, I mean, they're equally as successful as, as, as yourself. I mean, you, you alluded last Much time we spoke so. to, oh, that's very, very, um, very kind. But your <laughs> sister is, uh, uh, heads up uh, Prince William and Kate Middleton's charity. Yes, well, she she set up the the Royal Foundation and is now has now sort of set up an offshoot of that, which Prince William and Kate are still very much involved in, called Shout, which is a mental health phone based helpline, which is which has been uh, incredibly useful for for those you know increasing numbers of people both pre and post pandemic that you know are suffering with mental health. She does that, and of course, my half sister Jill is a novelist, as is as is my brother Nick. Mm-hmm. And in t- I mean, in terms of how they got into such a philanthropic world, what allowed them to do 
to do that because so many people want to give back so many people can't give back but yourself heading up uh, prince harry's charity as well you know you you're able to give back to people like no one else can how do you do that how do you have time well again in some cases it's a bit of luck and fortune isn't it in the sense that there are lots of people that want to give back and actually there's lots of people who, who give back funny enough i was talking to my sister about she was saying actually one of uh, one one of the people that work in in um one of our teams i was unaware of this <clears throat> Uh, work, works for us by day and actually volunteers uh, for her at night as right. a as as a help, as a trained helper on the phone and and and, and so I, I guess I'm kind of you know lucky enough to have set up a successful business and my partners and I have always sort of felt like putting something back as a business whether it's into something that you're passionate about so when it was the Labour Party we always did that as a sort of pro bono thing because we felt that if Labour and New Labour you know would make the country a a better, fairer place and enhance the life chances of those who were less fortunate, then that was a good use of our time, even if it wasn't, you know, um, economically sort of profitable for us. And I think we think the same thing across our partnership about about charity. So all the partners in our business are free to put forward a charitable endeavor that they would like to do with their teams. And so long as the rest of the team feels similarly, we try around the world now to give all of our partners the time to to, to give back and, and listen, I don't think we're unique in that. I think all companies now are, are, if you want to attract the best talent, it used to be about how quickly will I get promoted? How much will I get paid? I think now this generation of young people coming into the workplace are saying, what is this organization for? What's its sense of purpose? How will I be making a difference in a world in a way that I think is very different to when we were all younger and I think it, it is a good thing. And in terms of when, you know, how the world has changed, you very much went into agency as an employee, and then you eventually became a kind of entrepreneur, started your own agency and have scaled it from there. How has the agency world changed since you joined to where you are now? I mean, I think the agency world's been turned upside down, just like probably every other sector has been turned upside down by the internet. So, you know, when I first joined the world of advertising, it was a, it was about you know, three things. It was TV commercials, poster and print, and some and, and the wireless. And and um, that 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 was basically what advertising was about. And it was largely driven by having a big creative idea and and trying to put it in front of as many people as possible, which wasn't that difficult to do from a media perspective because there were you know in the UK four channels. Mm-hmm. Um, few yes. radio stations and some poster sites so it wasn't it, 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 in, in retrospect it was far from rocket science if you look at it if you look at it now you know there's a vast proliferation of channels including social media channels and platforms disparate audiences everywhere and therefore you know if it used to be all about the the mad men if mm-hmm. yes. mad women men and women I'm glad you picked um, up you on know, that. You know, it's yeah, mad men and women, of course. <laughs> um, that it, it, you know, that the people on with the other side of the brain, the maths people, have become equally important. So I think it's become, you know, that the, the, the advertising business now is still about creativity, but uh, equally about the deployment of that creativity and content, which is a lot about understanding data and the deployment of of content and and, and how it works. You know, uh, using technology, and that and and that is a sea change from where we were twenty five years ago. 
And we'll get into the ever-changing landscape shortly, but just picking it back up to when you got into agency life, I'm fascinated by how quickly you came, uh, or you grew, I suppose, from a career point of view, from a graduate trainee to an account director to then managing director in less than seven years. You graduated university and you then became MD of TBWA in, in seven years. You know, how did you have such rapid growth within a company from essentially knowing nothing? Probably a bigger indictment on the advertising industry at the time that allows somebody to do that, isn't it? Um, Again, luck, isn't it? It's all about God, luck. Well, I was going to say, if, it, if, it, if, if the industry was like it is today, where you really needed to understand uh, <laughs> technology and social media platforms, data and whatever, I probably would have taken me an extra 15 years to get there. But, um, <laughs> but I think, you know, I think um, the, the other thing that sometimes happens to people when they get into, I, I started slightly late. I, I, I um, left, did four years at Edinburgh University, and so I was sort of 24, 25 by the time I started my career. And I think by then I was chomping at the bit. And I sort of decided that this was what I wanted to do. I worked all my holidays in agency. So by the time I sort of left university, it's, it's what I really wanted to do. And I think I threw myself into it in a way that people talk now quite rightly about having a work-life balance and give, giving you a sense of perspective. And uh, I think for those seven years, I literally did nothing but eat, sleep and drink <laughs> advertising uh, in the days when you were allowed to drink. Did, did you smoke? Did you smoke as well? Get a full Mad Men or not? I smoked. I think I used to try and see if I could get through two packets of cigarettes every day. Every um, day. That's you know, good going. Every day. And you did. And also you just realize again how the world's changed. I managed to, through hypnosis uh, 15 years ago, give up smoking altogether. But oh, you, you know, did that. Wow. When I started in my first agency as an account executive, part of my job was to make sure that the cigarette trays in the middle of the meeting room were full for the client meeting. It, it does beg a belief, but don't, you're going to tell me now that you were a man that used to drink old-fashioned as well. Is that is that was that your tipple? Well, I, <laughs> no, but we probably you know. I mean, uh, we, we've all moved on, haven't we? I was just thinking we used to smoke on the tube on the way to work. Um, but um, no, so 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 I think smoking and, and and drinking and all of that were were part of the world that you know I entered in back in the day before the internet and before we all thought differently about how we behaved at work and etc and so i think we've all evolved uh, a long way probably for good reasons so in 2001 you founded chi and partners and that is still in business today still runs today what is the difference between that business and essentially the business that you've uh, currently got now the and partnership uh, so chi was was probably not unlike the story of our agency isn't unlike the beginning of it anyway every other ad agency back in the day which is you know three people a creative person a, a strategist and, a, and an account person for some reason i don't know why we're supposed to be experts in branding putting their names putting their names above the door so is that a good that's what it was called clever all being <laughs> uh, at the same time as bartle bogle Hegarty, and you know everyone yes. was called Biggles, boggles, and what's it? It gives you um, gravitas, that, doesn't it? Gave us, you know, thinking that's that's brilliant branding. And then the client would say, "Why, why are we taking these guys' advice on branding when you're when you're called?" When I started, because there were three merged agencies. When I started at TBWA, we were we were called TBWA GGT Simon's Palmer. Your dot com. <laughs> yeah, and somebody said, "Why?" Uh, yeah, well, we still aren't sure what dot com meant. No, but, that's fair. But um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but you, you suddenly think, why is anybody taking branding advice from from us? Um, but, but you know, so so what happened is we, for our first five or six years, were very much like every other advertising. We we pitched, we made ads, 
Uh, you know, most of them were television and print. We tried to win awards at Cannes. We wanted to be more famous than everyone else. We tried to get our name in campaign as often as possible. That was what you did. We won an award in campaign, by the way, for this podcast, Johnny. I kid you well, not. They, um, well, that is, I'll tell you what, that's all I ever used to care about is you, how my own campaign. That's success. Um, yeah, <laughs> but as I said, as, as one could see, and I've made lots of mistakes in my career, but one of the things I could start to see by the kind of 2007, 2008 is you you really didn't want to be in the business of creating content and be divorced from the deployment of that content. So when we sold 49% of our business to WPP, my two partners soon after, the C and the I, decided they wanted to kind of retire and do other things. They'd been very successful and et cetera. Uh, and so um, you then thought, okay, Clemo on being without the Clemo and the being sounds a bit crap if it's Hornby. And I also wanted to involve a whole load of other people from other disciplines in the business. So I said, actually, let's celebrate the people who create the content and the people who deploy the content being as one. So we changed the name to the AND partnership, celebrating, if you like, kind of the, the genius of the AND rather than the tyranny of the or. And I turned the firm then into a kind of using a legal, like, like legal practices, a partnership where different people could get to a certain stage in the business, be elected by their, be, be elected by their peers as, as, as partners, uh, then become vested in uh, and owners in over time of, of their own kind of futures. And that has probably been, as I say, I've done countless stupid things, but that was one that was a smart thing to do. And I think the fact that our business today still has, you know, probably 15 or 16 partners in it that have been through that entire journey is a real strength of our business. And whereas lots of clients will say, well, the problem with, you know, agency people or whatever is that, you know, you'll you'll see them at one agency one week and three weeks later you pitch the business and they're somewhere else. That's not true here. And I think part of the reason that, you know, if I look at some of our clients, whether it's a in the UK, a NatWest, a British Gas, a News UK, those clients, you know, that we won in 2001, 2002, 2003, uh, are still with us today because, you know, the people that run that business and, and work on that business are partners in our business, but essentially partners in their business because they know that the people that run their account sort of are vested in their business. So that's been the heart of our success, I think. So what was the decision with the three different or the other two shareholders within the business to to shift that? Was it you that fundamentally went, guys, we need to shift this this 49% or was it a general quorum or how did that conversation go? Because someone must have stimulated it. It was a kind of blend of the boys feeling that they had loved the seven years that we'd had together, creating advertising, building brands, uh, etc. They had both been very successful before we started. Charles had had an amazing career at at, at, at Lowe's. He had the only two, the only person to have been awarded to the level that he had at Cannes in terms of the numbers of Grand Prix. He'd won, the only person who'd won two Grand Prix. And so he'd already had a massively successful career. Simon Clemo had had an agency previously that he sold to TBWA. Uh, so from their point of view, I think they had achieved a lot of what they had wanted to achieve. I'm a little bit younger than them, slightly the next generation. So I think when I was talking about my sort of dream for the agency and in the future of being more connected to media, more connected to data, digital, et cetera. I didn't foresee all the things that were going to happen as a result of the internet, but just that general sense. Um, I'm not, I'm not pretending I could see, I could see Instagram coming if I 
if I had, I should have started it. But, um, but I, but I, I, um, I, I could sense that that was the direction of travel. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think it, it, it meant a new chapter for the agency. And I think, listen, be, uh, a combination of things, you need to ask the boys, but Martin Sorrell at the time made us a very, very valuable offer for the 49% of our business. What does he offer? He offered us, um, he valued our business, I think, in 2007 at 60 million pounds. And what was the equity split between you three? Uh, well, the three of us were equal. Well, you, oh, okay, fine. Oh, okay. And how did that affect decisions then? Because obviously, I suppose you'd have to, one of you would be the majority, I suppose. It would tip it. And well, so in, up until the point that we did that with, um, with Martin, we always agreed that all three of us had to agree on everything. Otherwise, it couldn't go forward. But all three of us did agree that, uh, you know, it would be interesting to shift the business in another direction. And as part of that, I said, if the, if, if the boys, when they, you know, were wanting to spend less time in the business, wanted to spend less time in the business, I really wanted to find a way to get a new set of partners, you know, alongside me for the future. So the combination of them being able to take a lot of Martin Sorrell's value <laughs> off the table, <laughs> yeah. they still, own, they still, that said, they still own shares in the business and the business is, the business the business in 2007 was about what it was. I can remember exactly. It was, it was 20 million of revenue and was valued at sort of 60 million. Uh, and this year, it'll do 140 million of revenue. So it's it's grown enormously since then. I'm proud that the boys are still partners and still shareholders. And that's plugged into WPP still, is it? And, and WPP still own the same 49.9% that they own in uh, that they. That they took in 2007 yeah so so it's been the same for 14 years uh the only difference being that obviously the the, the boys shared their partnership with a wider group of partners who are now other partners in the end partnership and we'll get on to wpp because i'm fascinated by that story um more so in a minute in terms of your synergy with martin there but in terms of before you even shifted your 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 business the 60 million revenue there or indeed the buyout um you had the best luck in the world in terms of being able to open up your office quite literally above car phone warehouse just simply because you poached that client from your previous agency tba uh, wa and somehow had no rent and that scaled you from essentially nothing to essentially that valuation a couple of years down the line now that was a massive bit of luck how did you strike that deal well i had i had a very supportive client in the founder of the car phone warehouse charles dunson as he was so charles dunson as he is now and actually tbwa we had a very happy parting oddly enough i thought it was a great even though you poached their most valuable client yeah it it was incredibly friendly i'll tell you why and it's, it's credit to paul bainsfair who's you know leads the ipa nowadays he was chairman of TBWA. I was running the Labour Party account in 2001. The Labour, you, everyone will probably forget this, but there was foot and mouth disease, which put the general election back. And so thinking the general election was going to be earlier than it was, I went to see Paul and said, look, I've always had this dream of starting my own agency. It was difficult for the management of TBWA at the time to say that they disagreed with such a thing because Paul Bainsfair had started his own agency, Bainsfair Sharky Trot, which TBWA had brought. Again, name above the door. Yeah, yeah. and Carl, exactly another one. And Carl Johnson had started Simon's Palmer Johnson. <laughs> yeah, Johnson. Classic, like it. And they'd also sort of, and they were the management. And I said, guys, I tell you what I'd love to do. I'd love to do what you guys have done and start my own agency, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that in a way that, you know, pulls the doors down here and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I said, I wanted to give you fair notice of this and i'd like to continue to run the labor party account for you but once the election's over uh in a couple of months time you know i'd like to go then there was foot and mouth disease which meant that it was put back another couple of it was four or five months and so they hadn't yet 
sort of worked out exactly how they wanted succession and everything else to work. And I said, well, look, I'll tell you what, why don't we do this? I'll look after all your clients until I go. I will sign something promising you that I won't take any people or clients for the next two years because everyone gets paranoid saying, if you start your own agency, is Johnny going to try and take all of our best people and all of our clients? And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll sign something saying I won't take any of the clients um, if you let me take the car phone warehouse, which at the time, uh, at the time, they knew Charles was, uh, I was Charles's best man uh, and he was right. my best man. Okay. And so they sort of knew that one was going whatever. <laughs> yeah. so, that, so we sort of did a deal. So I tell you what, if Charles, they said, there's no way Charles isn't going with you. I said, okay, well, I tell you what, let's do this. I'll take Charles and I'll sign something to say I won't go near any of your clients or any of your people for the next two years. And Paul Bainsfair said, fair enough. And in case you need some help, why don't you keep why don't you keep some laptops and some whatever? So they helped us out and gave they gave us a whole load of stuff to go and start our agency. And actually it was very smart of Paul because oddly enough, not only did I not go and take any of their clients for the next two years, but I never went out of my way to take a TBWA client for as long as as long as uh, Paul was there because I was so respectful of him and the way he treated us. And actually for me, if this is this podcast is a bit about what should people learn, you know, I think what you learn is of course, you want to be competitive in business, but also you want to recognize that you're in, in, in most industries, the people that are your competitors ideally can also be your friends and colleagues on the longer journey. And if you treat them well, you know, things will work out well. And Paul Bainsfair treated me and asked very well. And I hope he would say if he was being interviewed <laughs> that we treat, you know, we treated him well thereafter. So I think it was a good example just of yeah. people sort of being respectful of each other and also respectful of the fact that lots of people in our business want to start their own agency and i've had some people who've worked for me and i was upset when they did it but you know when they came in here and came into my office when they said we're going to go and start our own agency it's quite hard for me to say well that's a really stupid idea given <laughs> we've been very successful doing it so i think i think i think all of us need to respect other entrepreneurs Our sponsors, Coronation Wealth Management, provide a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. This is how Coronation Wealth helped a senior manager in the medtech sector. Being a senior international manager in a business that IPO'd, Coronation Wealth has helped hugely with my tax planning, as well as savings and investments off the back of the flotation. The value of an investment with St. James's Place will be directly linked to the performance of the funds that you select, and the value can therefore go down as well as up. You may get back less than you invested. Coronation Wealth Management LLP is an appointed representative of and represents only St. James's Place Wealth Management PLC, which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority for the purpose of advising solely on the group's wealth management products and services. More details of which are set out on the group's website, www.sjp.co.uk forward slash products. Sponsorship by Coronation Wealth Management does not imply endorsement of the service providers featured within these podcasts. Uh, so how much was Carphone Warehouse worth to you from day one then? First year? Uh, I mean, I tell you, it was quite funny. Ch Charles said, look, I'm going to help you with, 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 with the account and I'm going to help you with some office space. Uh, and, you know, he liked Paul Bainsfair, become a friend of his, you know, Bainsfair's given you some computers and you've got some, you know, whatever. He said, but we're now floating the business, so it would be inappropriate for me, given we're friends, to negotiate the fee. And so... Uh, he said, you need to go and see my procurement people. And this was my first lesson in life. I was so excited. I thought, oh, it must be, it must be worth a fortune. The procurement people immediately hated me because, you know, they knew that I was mates with 
Charles and that there was no process and that there hadn't been a pitch and all the things that procurement would have imagined should have happened. Yes, it keeps hadn't happened. Yes. So um, they um, turned me over completely and paid us, paid us very, very little. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it was very little. And it's funny, I then bumped into Charles a couple of weekends later and Charles was like, isn't it really exciting? I said, well, it's sort of exciting. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, sort of ended up with not being paid very much by your procurement people. And he said, well, surely that's a lesson for you in learning how to negotiate better with procurement people if you're going to run your own agency, which was a fair point. So I learned the, learned the hard way. And then he said, well, listen, I can't get involved in this. I can't believe it. So he said, I'll tell you what, though, um, you sometimes used to take, you know, um, your clients out on, on my boat. Uh, why don't you know, why don't I let you use the boat to take clients out on? And I said, well, Charles, it's really sweet of you, but the only client I've got is you. So <laughs> it'd be slightly weird if I bring you up and say, thanks a lot for the business. <laughs> I thought to thank you for that, I'd take you out on your own boat. Uh, but by the time we actually got round to the end of our first year, having had a slow start, we won, we suddenly got on this run uh, where we won Tango, Typhoon Tea, The Telegraph. I can remember it all, all in the, in the weeks run up to Christmas, having not what having not had a phone call but we started in the july between the july and the october literally no one rang we had nothing to do we made like two ads for the Carphone warehouse we turned our we turned our boardroom table into a ping pong table i'm glad you did that i did the same thing i didn't have Carphone warehouse but i did the same thing i've got nothing to do i'm gonna have to put a net over the boardroom table and play whatever and you start thinking are we ever going to win anything and do you think paul bay and literally by november i was sort of saying to my wife do you think Paul Bain's fair to have me back? <laughs> you know. um, and and then luckily we 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 won sort of three pitches in on the trot. And mm -hmm. then amusingly, I called Charles mm -hmm. the in the May and said, you know, um, we've entered your award at Cannes. Can we borrow? I'm going to take you up on that offer to of your boat. <laughs> of your boat. So we actually for the next fifteen years had some fairly. Uh, entertaining cans on Charles's boat, but we've since decided that yachts and drink and excess are no longer part of our brand or our behaviour. So we've we've given the boat back. <laughs> it's all about dinghies and coffee now. Dinghies, um, dinghies and coffee, and going on long runs. Structurally, then, how did you set the business up? Because it was you three guys whiff waffing away in the in the boardroom. What did you? How did you know about setting up a business? Because you'd only worked for people previously, and you'd had seniors, you'd had juniors, granters, but you'd never run, I suppose, a team with equity and with actual overheads yourself. What did you do to be able to learn how to structurally set that up? Oh, you know, fuck it up over and over again. I mean, you know, really interesting, like. Uh, after we finally did get some advertising and some stuff going, whatever, you know, we didn't have a finance person. So I did the finance. Oh, good. For how long? Six months until, in fact, this happened. Um, somebody said, what have we done about VAT? So, what have we done about VAT? And, you know, so I hadn't done anything about VAT. And so, uh, you know, suddenly start thinking, shit. There's a vat of beer in the corner. That's what yeah, exactly. Saying. That's the only thing there is. There's a, did the bat. The, the, yes. the, there's a bat for the ping pong, but there wasn't any vat. So so it was things like that. You suddenly start thinking. And, and you try and do these things yourself. And, of course, when you're tiny and you've got no money, you do have to because you haven't got the wherewithal to do it. You try and beg, borrow and steal from other people's advice. And in our industry, I have to say also, people were wonderful. You know, um, competitors... I wrote to all of our competitors. They didn't think of us as competitors. We were three blokes playing ping pong, but all the people I admired in the business and said, I've just set up my business with these 
two lads. And I think what you did was extraordinary. Would I, would you spare me, you know, 20 minutes for a coffee? And, you know, you'd think you wouldn't get much back. And Nigel Bogle said, sure. And uh, Leslie Butterfield said, sure. And, you know, it was like uh, Jim Kelly said, sure. I mean, a list of, of um, fantastic people that all said yes. And I wrote down, you know, and I just asked them all the same simple questions, which is sort of like, what was the one thing that you're really glad you did? What was one thing you wish you'd never done? You know, you'd wish you'd never done. What advice would you give to, you know, and I just wrote this down and that really helped. But then it was also then some hard, hard knocks lessons of, of, of realizing I'm, I'm not really a finance person. I'm not really. Um, and so each time we then won a piece of business, we'd treat ourselves to something we didn't have that we thought we needed, you know, and you'd always have a longer list of things that you needed than you, you know, could have. So we said, okay, so we've won Thai food tea. Are we going to treat ourselves with A, and as I said to you, we always had to agree everything, all three of us, A, a photocopier, B, a PA, <laughs> you know, or C, someone to do the VAT a day a week. <laughs> Um, you, you know, and he's sure I can't remember. I think we went photocopy first, which is why we didn't get the VAT right. But you know, so you sort of think, and then and you sort of build up from there. But you know, what's what's exciting about it is you come to um, appreciate everything more. We won a, a piece of business, a project from Virgin, and a wonderfully talented client of ours, who's who you know still we made loads of friends as well over the years, who are still friends to this day. Fantastically talented lady called Jane Angadia who ran Virgin throughout and um, we, we won this project for Virgin and she sent us a fridge, one of those Smeg fridges. You've still got that in your office, I saw on the yeah, camera. Yeah, it's, it's here, it's there behind it is. me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's still there, Jane Ann, thank you, there it is. <laughs> it's aged well. But it was just um, th things like that, you just think, oh my God, look, we can have, on Friday, we can have a beer and, you know, and it's just like all the things that you took for granted working for a big agency, you go, that's our fridge, that's our, Look at that we've got a security guard oh yeah look <laughs> just stand there you know um <laughs> but also there are some things i have to say as i look back also that you have to be careful that when you get to a certain size you can lose so and i think it's a reason somebody once said this is sort of the romans understood this which is why they sort of had centurions as soon as an organization gets above 100 it becomes harder to manage because up to 100 you know just about everybody knows everybody's name and everybody you know and in our first four or five years we something was like you know, people didn't have assistance and you there was a key, key fob code thing on the door you know so if you when you leave if you're the last person to leave you turn the lights out and lock up the agency and if they haven't been cleaned up you put the coffee cups you know in the plastic bag and tie it up and put them outside the door for the you know people who take them away so the agency isn't a mess the next day and sudden and and in a way we went through a period where you sort of missed that going what happened to that because that was such a good and everyone felt it was their agency and it was their job and they'd pick up the coffee cups. And then suddenly you reach that next stage of success where you've suddenly got 250 people or something. You go, I don't know everyone's name, which is annoying because I don't know, therefore, who has left all those coffee cups out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but have exactly. we somehow lost the sense of ownership in this place that people think it's OK that they left the coffee cups out? Because and they suddenly go, yeah, because you, you then reach this point where you go, well, they, they maybe they don't feel it is their agency like the first 50 people think. It was. They just think it's a place that they currently work before they go and work at another place, which, by the way, isn't their fault. But you suddenly then realize you've lost the some of the magic that's inherent in being a small business where everyone feels like they've won Thai food tea because there's only 12 of us or whatever. Uh, 
disappears because you've suddenly then you're six years old and there's 250 people and not everyone remembers why we started and why we're different and whatever and then the thing can go a bit more blamongy yes and then you have to try and rebuild that in terms of your experience both i suppose in agency but arguably in business full stop you obviously have very much focused on agency life for the last 30 odd years what stopped you from investing say capital that you have been uh, given or indeed generated into other areas other businesses other markets and you know why have you been so focused in agency life I, i'm sort of quite convinced about the fact that as as i get older that you know there's things i know a lot about and there's and those and those revolve around <laughs> agency yes. life and 30 years of experience and there's things i know no, nothing about and therefore i guess i have focused the money that this company has has, has generated uh, and investing back in people and talent that I sort of understand and in some cases invested it in technologies uh, often alongside you know WPP that we that we think we can deploy effectively for our clients some of those have gone well some have actually gone pretty badly as well I mean listen the the, the business has been very successful so we've won a lot more than we've lost but for our clients today you know it's about understanding how do you sell in Amazon how do you use Salesforce as a as a as a business to business tool if you're a subscription business or a b2b player you know how do you use instagram facebook you know to to, to target audiences and to find the audiences that are right for a brand that, that we are better at most of the brands that we work with than we are in inventing them we will still invest at times in we've, we've invested in some video platforms we've invested in other apps uh, but on the whole my my life as a tech investor on behalf of the M partnership has been probably limited limited success and i think we're, we're better off actually uh partnering by wpp with with the biggest platforms So, obviously, over the last 28 years of my life, there's only been one major hiccup in terms of what's gone in globally, and that was the pandemic only recently. Now, in terms of you guys, 1,400 staff, 43 different countries, what went through your mind, Johnny, when the government essentially said, right, lockdown, closed down, everyone works from home? How did you organise 1,400 staff to work from home? Well, I suppose we, we went through the same kind of um, ups and downs that everybody else did. But I tell you what, what was interesting, if I just think of it specifically for our industry, at the very beginning of the first lockdown, everybody, and it starts with clients, you know, their instinctive reaction, similar, in fact, to 2008. And I think it was useful probably to have lived through 2008 in a way, hmm. at the beginning of pandemic. So I sort of, you know, it doesn't make you feel any more necessarily reassured, but some of the things you look at as it starts, you go, okay, We've been here, haven't we? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and and you know the two, the similarities were an immediate kind of the first thing you do if you're a big company, and things look incredibly uncertain, is you you look at those the expenditure that you've got that you that you can stop spending marketing. Whilst you know we all spend our lives saying it's essential and it is for growth and for brands to grow and and and, and uh, etc. It's also something that if you're in the finance function you can look at and say it's a lever that i can immediately pull like a handbrake and stop and so you know what happened in 2008 is everybody looked at thought the world was going to fall on its ass which it had and thought well where can, where can i immediately stop spending money in case i might even be worried about whether my business is going to go under and so the first thing to go is marketing mm -hmm. and so at the beginning of the pandemic everyone pulled the marketing handbrake and so you know that that was a, a, a scary moment for all of us and you wonder how long it's going to last 
I guess what was interesting after the first three months of, of the lockdown is you started to see some trends emerging. And I remember one that was particularly compelling and sort of changed the game a bit for us was in the UK, I believe the most popular, most watched show outside of sporting events and political events, et cetera, was Britain's Got Talent. Mm -hmm. And I think on, I'll get these numbers slightly wrong, but I think something like this, um, pre-pandemic, uh, 6 million or so people would tune into Britain's Got Talent mm -hmm. on a Saturday night. And, you know, you might pay 60,000 pounds to, to buy a, a TV spot in that mm -hmm. show. As we got into three months into the pandemic, I remember like the June, the second quarter of the pandemic, beginning of things, sat with the team. Said, you know, you wouldn't believe it, but on Saturday, I'm going to this meeting, so it wouldn't be on Saturday night, 12 million people watched Britain's Got Talent. And, you know, it's, for me, not the greatest show I've ever seen. <laughs> so diplomatic. So you, you said to go, okay, so that's gone from six to twelve minutes, and then so but yeah, but but still nobody's advertising. So actually, a, a spot in in Britain's Got Talent's th thirty grand. So, you go, mm -hmm. well, wow. so this, this I'm not brilliant at maths, but so so what was twelve million and cost sixty is now, uh, sorry, what was six million and cost sixty is now twelve million and cost thirty, and at the same time, no one else is advertising. So if you did take a slot in there, you know. Normally, you always think about share a voice. Yes, I've mm -hmm. got that. I've got that car ad, but aren't there six other car ads airing at the same time on different channels at the same thing? So, you know, the consumers being from well, no, no, if everyone's pulled out, so we kind of went to sort of concerted and it was a turning point for us across our business, and so across both traditional channels like television, but but then increasingly across Instagram and all the platforms, yes. we suddenly started to see. Hold on, the whole world is stuck at home. And they're on a screen, whether it's a traditional television screen or a laptop or a phone, or if they're younger people, probably all three at the same time. And this is a huge opportunity for brands. And in some cases, if it isn't the opportunity for them to, you know, buy a new car tomorrow morning or you know, make a purchase decision, it's certainly a great time to get their attention and, and, and build the consideration that will lead to them buying one, you know, when we come out of this. And of course, there was an obvious thing that not just we, but lots of other clients uh, and agencies mm -hmm. that latched onto also, which was the ability also for big brands to try and do something, even if it was just show an affinity with this sort of sense that happened in the UK, but in every nation of sort of, we need to get behind, you know, the essential services, yes. particularly in the, in the UK, it was the NHS, but you know, whether it was in Canada or the US, whatever and saying, I think in every, on every brand said, what could our company, what could the companies we work for brands do to help? So are you say are you saying that um, that Tesco's who donated their advertising space then to smaller local businesses did so because the advertising space was cheaper? No, I'm saying that two things happened. I think there was a general sense from all of the brands and people who work for brands mm -hmm. that they wanted to do something. They could see everyone wanted to, you know, they wanted to help, and that if I'm not a doctor or a nurse, how can I help? My wife and I gave our a, a cardo slot, which was a precious thing, to my mother because my mother you know more traditionally likes to wanted to go to the local shop and do yes. her own shopping and of course what's interesting is having had that she never looked back no no and so and and i think that has happened in the yes. in this pandemic is you know a, a lot of the we have seen an acceleration in 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 the kind of digital transformation of businesses mm -hmm. uh of, i don't know we're going to call it you know six years in three yes where you know in my wife's business mm -hmm. people Having having a whole array of clothes delivered to their house, and mm -hmm. they can try on the ones they like, 
send back the ones they don't like, not be charged for it. Why would I do it any other way? You know, and I think backing digital transformation of businesses through the pandemic you mm-hmm. know, pr- proved very fruitful. And it's interesting, and, and some would think this is scripted because you were towing such a perfect line there in terms of saying that digital transformation has turned six years into three. I had uh, Sir Martin Sorrell on the podcast only a few weeks ago, and he was towing a similar line. But again, you were you were tipped to essentially take Sir Martin Sorrell's seat at WPP. He said on the podcast a few weeks ago that the wrong half a person, not the wrong full person, the wrong half a person uh, is in charge of WPP. Do you still harbour ambitions to take Mark Reed's spot? Gosh, he's quite cryptic, isn't he? What did he say? The wrong half? Half a, half a person, I quote. Well, it, well, indeed. I mean, Mark Reed, for instance, who is you? You say is the wrong chap for WPP to, to drive. Well, no, it's, it's not the wrong chap. He's he, he's the wrong half a chap. <laughs> um, okay. You know, he is is Andrew Scott, who sort of disappeared into the background for unknown reasons. I don't know right. because I think I think uh, Andrew is immensely talented. I mean, Andrew has the abilities that Mark doesn't. I have to say, I've said this a few times. I, yes. I, I find it unfortunate that Martin spends so much of his time uh, harking back to criticising WPP generally and specifically, you know, Mark Reed. You know, my my having having worked alongside them all since two thousand and seven. You know, mm-hmm. um, Mark Reed was nothing but loyal to Martin. Bought all of the acquired all of the digital businesses that made WPP as attractive as it was during that period through his understanding of it and had absolutely nothing to do with, you know, Martin Sorrell's demise that I'm not going to get into any of the, whatever it was that did get into, you know, led to Martin Sorrell's demise. But I'd, I'd hazard a guess that it was, that he should be looking at himself, not Mark Reed for that. And, <laughs> and you know, but the, the other thing I'd say is that Martin has gone on to build an extremely successful business that's, you know, got a huge valuation in a very short period of time. As I understand mm-hmm. it, he's made himself more wealthy, you know, personally in the last four years than he did in the previous yeah. 17. So, so, so why it is that Mark Reed has to have, you know, um, Martin Sorrell sitting up in the stands commenting on every mm-hmm. substitution he makes, like poor David Moyes did on when Alex Ferguson retired. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really know because Mark doesn't deserve that. Mark should be yeah. left to, to run the business as he sees fit. And I have to say, I think Mark's done a terrific job of, maybe fixing some of the things that Martin should have fixed earlier. You know, yes. Martin should have recognized that the traditional ad agencies needed to be allied to technology and media much earlier. And so Mark has had to do a lot of things that Martin should have done earlier. And I do think it's ironic slightly also that in, 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 in having built a business, which was terrific, Martin did an amazing job, mm-hmm. having built a business like he did that was very traditional in keeping all of these disciplines separate and mm-hmm. being dogmatic about the fact that he wouldn't yes put them together, despite the fact that people like Mark Reed and myself are saying, surely that's what you need to do. But he refused to do it. And then when he started his own business, it it looks very much like the business that (laughs) I've I've built and Mark is trying to recreate, you know, WPP to be, which is about putting the people who create the content and the people who, you know, deploy the content in the same in the same room with the client to for, for as much kind of speed as possible to make most of the, of the digital transformation. But, you know, I, that some of that sounds critical. Martin Sorrell is mm-hmm. one of the greatest figures in the history of media and always will be. And therefore, mm-hmm. I think it's even more, therefore, unbecoming for him to need to 
pick on Mark Reed. I've said that before and it makes him irate when I do. So I'm sure when this, snip, this snippet is played to him, he'll, he'll get cross again. But I just, Maybe we should get Mark Reed on as well, just for his opinion. We've had you, Johnny. We've had Martin. We should have we should have Mark for the full three. In terms of when WPP actually came into your business, when they when they purchased that equity state for 60 million, what changed for for your business then? What were the challenges that you came up against with a far bigger business having a, a significant stake in, 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 in your enterprise? I mean, I have to say most of the most of the uh, almost all of our experience with WPP over the last fourteen years has been completely positive, and, and having just criticised him, most of my time with Martin was was wholly mm. positive um, in, until the end, when when we very much moved our business to be the kind of single-minded entity that it is that he felt sort of flowed against what he was doing with WPP. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think you know, had we not had access to the global infrastructure that WPP presented mm-hmm. us with, had we not had the relationships with the technology companies that they had, had we not had the media might to, to put behind our clients, I don't think we'd have been able to build a business that went from whatever it was, you know, 80 people to, you know, um, 1400 people in one country to 43 countries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got a, just over a billion in billings you know, an, an, an approaching 150 million in, 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 in revenue. Um, so, so WPP has been a fantastic partner for us. And I think, you know, we say this sometimes when WPP aren't in the room, we sometimes say, you know, our version of it is the best of both worlds because we've got a sort of partner-led entrepreneurial yes. culture that you'd find in a sort of small, agile organization allied to all the might media might technology and global infrastructure of WPP. So in a way we see that as the best of both worlds. But I have to say my relationships with Mark Reed and all of the guys that run his different units from Mediacom to Mindshare to Wonderman Thompson, Hogarth, et cetera, is, is fantastic. And and you know, most of the teams that we build for our clients, we now build with elements of WPP as part of them. So we're pretty joined at the hip. You said that when WPP aren't in the room, you say that. Now, what did you learn when you are sitting in the room with individuals and we're not on Zoom and, and we're looking back at, at lessons over, over the last couple of years? It's interesting. You know, today I'm having this conversation with you. I had a, 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 a breakfast with Piers Morgan to talk about a new show that he's launching and, and, and how we might help bring that your brand. He's landed on his feet there. I think that could be quite interesting. I think it'd be incredibly exciting. Yeah. I, I then went over to WPP and had a meeting with Mark, and then I went to, to see a whole number of WPP colleagues. And you sort of feel, you know, having not done this last week, I was in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to see Robert Thompson at, at, at uh, News Corp. And, mm-hmm. and, and you, you suddenly think, gosh, it's great to be back, you know, yes. as much as it's efficient, as I said earlier on Zoom. Yes. You know, just to get your to sort of get ideas fizzing and mm-hmm. hearing what other people are doing and you know making those different connections and thinking, well, hold on, if we did that with this, so much of that mm-hmm. I think requires the kind of buzz of people being together and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of being in the moment. And also, I have to say, much as it's convenient not to leaving your house, right? you know, mm-hmm. getting up, it's still good to get up in the morning. You know, I had breakfast with Piers at seven thirty this morning because he had a sky appearance. So, you know, so it's, normally it's he'd be on Good Morning Britain at that time, but now he's well. Technically there are some reasons. <laughs> there are some reasons why he's, which we discussed, why he's not doing that. But actually, yes. as you say, but I think I think he's now going to have a, a a fantastic opportunity mm-hmm. to to launch, you know, a, a global brand. And what are you doing with Piers then? What is your what is your role in in Piers's next step? Well, the same role that we play and have played, I guess, with news, with news, you know, right. around the world, going back to going back to when we first started with them 
you know, 21 years ago, which is, mm-hmm. which is for us to help develop the branding and the marketing for the fantastic content they produce. And as I said to Piers this morning, actually, one of the things I've learned about media brands mm-hmm. uh, in America, if, if a guy comes on television and says, my name's Bob from Bob's Autos, most people lean forward in, in, in the US and say, hey, Bob, what have you got to, you know, sell us or talk to us about tonight? Yes. If you say, hello, I'm, you know, Bob, Robert from Robert's Car Company in the UK, people in the UK go sod off, Bob, and turn to another <laughs> channel. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons we had to develop creative advertising, I think, historically, starting with CDP through Lowe's to whatever, mm-hmm. is that British, the British consumer is more cynical. And the reason that we had to make funny ads and creative mm-hmm. ads and sensational ads was that, as Frank Lowe said, if we can entertain people for 29 seconds, they would, might not mind if we spend the last second telling them that that was brought to them on behalf of Heineken, and they might just remember the brand and choose it over another. And, you know, in some ways, that's an old fashioned view of how content works. But interesting enough, when you say, what do we do for news or what do we do for peers? The truth is the content that he creates and the news that he creates, you know, simply by doing a tweet is yes. fantastic content in of itself. And I think 8 million people following him yes. every day know that but i think our job is to just is to put that in a kind of branded format that that makes his his channel a success for news so it'll be it'll be really interesting but i think that's going to be a really interesting journey launching a new show yes in in at the same time in australia uh, the UK and the, uh, and the US with, with beers at the heart of it. And we've alluded to the fact that you are essentially Don Draper from Mad Men, whether you love or hate that. Now, in terms of going back to News Corp, etc., and, and, and just slightly off the cuff with regards to succession on Sky, whether you've seen it, I don't know. What are your thoughts on succession being likened to, to Rupert Murdoch? It's very interesting. Uh, I was talking to, I think, one of the PR people at, at, um, at News Corp, which remained nameless, who said they thought that um, had you seen succession, it's that program about Sumner Redstone. <laughs> and I think it may be influenced by a number of people, but clearly, you know, um, it, it has some of the Murdochs very much at the at the heart of it. I have to say, I thought it was fantastic television. I agree. Uh, I think there's a second series coming soon, isn't there? Because I thought you know, the, I was... la- the, la- the last episode of the last series was left on such a fantastic... No, 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 of... Johnny, no. I've yet to finish it. I've only just discovered it. I've got another episode this evening, but I was baffled when they decided to to come to Cheltenham for one of the weddings. Being based in Cheltenham ourselves, I thought a New York agency, international, decide to come to Cheltenham. Most odd. But Johnny, in terms of what success looks like and whether it's taking on the world like the Murdochs have done or, or whether it's, you know, starting on a new path like Piers is doing, what does success look like to you and have you achieved it yet? Uh, well, so what does success look like? I mean, I, I, I like to think about success i mean i call our company our organization the AM partnership so so it isn't just about my success i hope if we're successful in the mission that we're trying to create is to is to make you know a successful business for us and our partners and i do also think you know talking about this next generation being very different to the probably generation when i first started i think people need to feel like success is much more than just financial success is about you know having the right work-life balance, feeling fulfilled at work, feeling like that some of the work that we do is there to make the world a better place, not just to make ourselves, you know, more, more commercial. So I think, I think as we move forward, if we want to be a, an attractive company, success will be a, a different balance to the sort of success it might have been 15, 20 years ago. And it's a challenging environment for us. You know, we compete, especially in our media business with, with the likes of Facebook and Amazon and Salesforce, and, mm-hmm. you know, Google and Twitter for our talent. They have deeper pockets than us, however well we're we're doing, you know. And in some of these debates about 
I'm very much wanting people to come back to work. Some of these platforms are saying people never need to come back to work, which I think is sort of unfortunate. So some people might choose not to work for us because they think, well, I don't want to go for work and I'm, I'm more there. So I think for us, creating a successful company will be about creating an environment that, yes, of course, for, for people, you know, we're, we're in a capitalist society, you know, they want to make money and be able to use that money to enhance their life chances and their families and all those things. But I think people also want to feel like success is being involved in things that are intellectually valuable and are doing something for society. So I think we always need to be the sort of place that if you come work for a company, you feel like, I don't know what's going to happen when I go to work tomorrow. You know, and that's what I still love about my job. You know, a lot of the things that we dream up and that we create, as I said, with whether it's some of the apps or something, they go nowhere. But mm -hmm. you've, got to, you've got to fail in order to succeed as well, you know, in this kind of business. And so I think success is creating, you know, if not the most vibrant, certainly one of the most vibrant kind of creative environments in the 43 countries where we're, you know, we're currently in. And I suppose if we do that well, maybe over the next 10 years, we'll be in 83 countries, you know, but I think I'll, I'll judge myself less on the number of places we are more on how vibrant a place we are and, you know, how, how much people want to come and work here. And to be honest, unless you're doing fantastic work and creating great ideas and changing things, we're in an oversupplied market. If I can't do that, then we won't be commercially successful because there'll always be other agencies and other entities that people can take their business to. Completely agree. And, and promise me you won't tell Sir Martin this, but I've enjoyed this interview equally, if not slightly more, Johnny. But in terms of if I want to find out a little bit more information about you guys and how you're actually going to be growing over the next couple of years and keep track on the AND partnership and all your charitable endeavours, how do I do that? Uh, I'm sure you've got more than enough people to follow in social media but through most of our handles i think we try and keep keep people informed on our instagram and on our twitter feed and etc of, of the campaigns we're doing and the and, and the difference we make for the charitable organizations that we work for and, and, and i think if if christian's doing his job correctly he tries to keep our global website updated yeah, christian's been in touch today lady. he's been in so, touch asking yeah so hopefully uh, hopefully through that through, through that you'll be able to see what we're, we're doing but also feel free to give us a call or a or a, or, or a message or whatever whenever you, whenever you see anything we're doing if you think it's either good, bad or indifferent of you. Johnny, I genuinely appreciate your time. It's truly inspiring. Thank you ever so much and take care. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more information, check out the description where you can find exclusive video snippets on my YouTube channel as well as contact details and links. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support as always by subscribing. If you or someone you know should be on the show, please email me via oliver at pinpoint-media.co.uk and I promise I'll get back to you. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Take care. Success in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. This podcast is supported by our media partner, Blocks and PR, who represent some of the most powerful brands within the luxury, lifestyle, and fashion sector. Go and check them out at blocksandpr.com.